Well, I, I trust that it was a, a joy to you last week to be uh, preached to by one of our own, Ian Hawking. For those who don't know Ian, Ian is one of the instructor pilots here at the base, so he and his family are here for a couple of years, but it, it's a joy to, to see him kind of hone that craft, and we pray that wherever the Lord would lead them next, hopefully years from now, but wherever the Lord leads them next, that um, he'll be used mightily uh, by whatever church they fall into. But uh, he had a daunting task. He, he chose to preach from the book of Hebrews, which is about the hardest thing you can do in the scriptures. So I wanted to one-up him as best I could by preaching from two chapters in the book of Genesis, not to be outdone by one of our own, but um, I pray that uh, we'll continue to have um, called men preach to us. And likewise, a friend told me a story where, uh, of a time when the, uh, the British country, or the British country, the United Kingdom, held on to several colonies around the world. They held on to the country of India, and politicians, the British politicians in India, were concerned about the number of cobras, especially the number of cobras that were um, all around in the city of Delhi. And so they decided to take action on this by telling people, for every cobra that you kill, we will give you money. And so the Indian people are very smart, so they started breeding these cobras so that they could kill them and then turn them in. And the British figured this plan out, and so they got away with the bounty that was done on this, except now all of these uh, bred cobras were just left to go around the country. So this problem became worse than anyone could have ever imagined. There were no more rewards for the money. The Indians released what they had bred into the wild, and this action brought about a higher cobra population than ever before. A bad situation became much, much worse. And here we are in Genesis 4 and 5, where you'll see a really bad situation that occurred in Genesis 3 now becomes even worse in Genesis 4, and then it will get even worse in Genesis 5. Though God created man and woman to live in peace with his, within his garden, Adam and Eve, the, the forefathers of the characters of this passage, Adam and Eve decided that they actually knew better or a better way. And so they determined to rebel and disobey God and his word. And what Genesis 3 showed us is the consequence of sin and rebellion. There were, there were curses of the ground that occurred after this, effects that would not only be temporary, but effects that would be long-term in people's lives. And, and what it shows you is that there is a beginning there of a legacy, a legacy that even continues to today, a legacy of sin. Now, remember that there was enmity, promise, between uh, the two offsprings. It was talking about the seed of the woman, and a seed of the man, meaning those who would side on the side of God and those who would side on the side of Satan. These two seeds or these sets of offsprings would have enmity against one another, strife against one another. But also, there was a promise there of an offspring of the seed of the woman or on the side of God, there would be an offspring who would ultimately conquer the serpent. So that should set off in our minds that every time from Adam and Eve someone is born, it ought to be somewhat a glimmer of hope. Maybe this is the seed who will conquer the seed of man. So there's an approach that we can take within Genesis 4 and Genesis 5 that, that these passages or that these scriptures speak to, an approach of, of listening to what God is saying to us and an approach of, of hoping. Now you're going to think hoping this, this will showcase just a lot of death. So how can we hope in people being killed? Where well, one provides an evaluation and also a reaction of hope 
as God's will continues to unfold on purpose for his people. So there's a lot here in these passages. There's brothers, there's a worship service, there's murder, there's death, there's more death, and there's curses. But there's also hope, amazing, amazing hope, amazing grace that God is providing for us even in these few words through all of that. And, and that hope is brought by God continually to a rebellious people. Now, there's a certain melody that's playing. If chapters 4 and 5 are like one song on a, on a soundtrack, there's a melody that's happening throughout verses four or chapters 4 and 5. Moses' words to the Israelites, think about this, this was written to a certain people in a certain time long ago. Moses was intentionally writing to a certain people in order to assure them that God is faithful in maintaining his promises to his people. And he will provide a deliverer for them. So you can imagine the Israelites, when they would have received this word from Moses and through different prophets, when they would have received this word, they would have been in a state of panic and despair and wondering, looking all around them, seeing the world falling apart and all these pagan enemies are trying to kill and crucify God's people. They receive this word that is intended to provide them hope that God day by day, moment by moment, is working all things according to his will, ultimately for the good of his own people. So in saying that, you might be in a place in life right now where you feel everything is in disarray. You have a good company in the people who would have heard this message for the first time thousands of years ago. Moses does this by telling them more about sin between the two brothers that we'll see. He's also going to tell them about this hope by showing the the effects of sin, and then also he'll lastly provide for them a hope in the midst of judgment. So if you've got an outline that's provided for you on the back of one of the bulletins, I'm now at point one, where I want to show you five things that regularly surround sin, and this is done through the action that was taken by Cain against Abel five-fold display surrounding sin in verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. Now, people, people very often, I'm one of those people, we talk about having a legacy or wanting to have a legacy. People talk about legacies in a lot of different ways. They, they might ask themselves internally or they might even be willing to ask other people, what is my legacy going to be like? What do I want my legacy to be? And most common, you can see a lot about someone's legacy through their own children. Uh, Whether fortunately or unfortunately, people's children will tell you a lot about their parents. You can learn a lot about people by their kids. Now, in some ways, this is fair. In some ways, this is not fair. But the Bible picks up after the narrative of creation and man's fall by zooming in on the kids of Adam and Eve, and it gets really ugly really fast. We don't know a lot about these kids, these first two kids, Cain and Abel. Uh, We don't know what they were really like. We just have this short snippet. And Cain's own children, we can see a lot from them and then another offspring from Adam and Eve of what they were like. But, But the one thing we know practically and theologically, think about this both practically and theologically, Cain and Abel inherit something from their parents. Maybe like you inherited a trait from your mom or your dad. They they are inheriting something that we all inherit from our parents. And that something is a sinful nature. The Bible is clear from the very beginning that the one thing that we have in common with our forefathers and our parents is that we have their sinful nature, and our offspring will have our sinful nature. You know, this is not a 401k you might want to pass down, but they inherit what's called original sin from their parents. 
original sin, if you just want to write down a definition, is the, human, is, that, is the reality that human nature has been morally and ethically corrupted due to the disobedience of mankind's first parents to the revealed world will of God. So human nature has been morally, your own nature is morally and ethically corrupted from day one, and it's because of Adam and Eve. Now things start out just fine in our own passage. You look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, things start out great. Adam knew his wife. She conceived and bore a son named Cain. And who doesn't love a baby at the beginning of a story? A gift was given to Adam and Eve, almost like a fulfillment, a, a glimmer of hope that was promised to them, even through this curse, that they would, they would have children and, and one of their offspring would conquer the seed of the serpent. They have a kid, terrific, Cain. Maybe he's the one, but God definitely provided this. We see this, this language already of, of what humankind, how humankind is to be valued by parents or the surrounding community where, where Eve recognized that it was God who provided this. And we know the occupations of Cain, but we also know that there was another one named Abel. We know his occupation as well. Cain was a tiller of the ground, and Abel is a shepherd of animals. We don't know how old they were at this point. We don't know how far apart they were. You know, there's no thing, no like genetic engineering, like, well, if they had had them four years apart or eight years apart or, you know, 12 months apart, maybe things would have gone different. We don't know that. Nothing's there in the text about it. We just know that these people had opportunity to serve God based on what he had given them. But there's one thing that we see in this, firstly, is the display of sin. We see five things, I think, here on the display of sin, and the first one is sin's own disruption in everyone's life. Your own sin is a disruption in everyone's life. Look at verses 1 and 2. Everything's fine. They're brothers. Brothers like each other. But what can we read back into the story is, is nothing will have caused Cain's sin other than Cain himself. There's nothing there circumstantially that would pit Cain against Abel. Now, to give away the end, Cain is eventually going to kill Abel, for those of you who may not be used to the story. But there's, there's nothing about like, how he was raised or what circumstances may he wanted to be this occupation or that occupation. None of them, it seemed like, picked on each other. They're just brothers. But Cain's own heart was hard. And we know that because of what he inherited from his parents. He inherited a hard heart. And God established rules and called Cain to follow those rules and able to follow those rules. And Cain, because of his heart, we see is sinful. Now, a takeaway for us is that our, our own natural heart needs an outside help and solution. You've, you've heard it said here a lot of times, we often think that we have an outward problem and we are actually the internal solution for it. So I might come up to you and rescue you because I am good enough to help you. But in reality, what the scriptures clearly teach is that all of us actually have an inward problem, meaning we are our problem, and we need an outward or an outside solution to our problem. We see this already here, recognizing that sin is disruptive. It causes disruption from the very beginning. Everything here circumstantially was just fine. But when things spiral out of control, it's because of the heart of man. So not only is sin disruptive, but it's also distinct. Look at verses 3 through 5. You can see sin's distinction here. This section records uh, what we can only describe as a worship experience by Cain and Abel. You can imagine like a worship service where they brought their offering to the Lord. And if you were gone two weeks ago, I, I dove into this part more intensely and more in long form. But in short, God... God accepts Abel's offering. So 
So Abel brought something and God accepted it. And then he rejected Cain's offering. So Cain, the firstborn, brought something and God discriminated against that offering. God discriminated against both of his offerings, one he liked and one he didn't like. He saw Abel's, and the language there says that he was pleased or he had delight in what he saw, and he saw Cain's and he rejected it. A discrimination that he made and was allowed to make. The distinction he made was based, we recognize within the scripture, as was based on the heart of the giver. Now, a lot of people go into a lot of work on what was it about Abel's offering and not Cain's that made Abel's valuable and Cain's not viable. We don't really know except of one thing that we're told uh, all the way in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, where the book of Hebrews said that whatever, whatever Abel brought, it was out of faith. And whatever Cain brought, it was not out of faith, it was out of duty or desire, like he had to. You can imagine a pouty little kid following the rules, but doing it with the heart that says, I don't like this. Where the the Spirit of God tells us in the book of Hebrews that Abel Abel gave out of faith and Cain gave out of obligation. And, And this is where sin shows its own distinction. Sin is often seen as arbitrary. You might think of your own sin. Sin is often seen as arbitrary or erratic or it's chaotic. You know, it it just seems to happen like a like a snowball that all of a sudden starts an avalanche. It just got there. I didn't mean for it to. I didn't mean to spout off. I didn't mean to cut you. I didn't mean to throw a punch. I didn't mean to belittle you. But we recognize that sin is never arbitrary. It's never erratic. It's never chaotic. People love to talk about their their choice as something positive. Like, by my own choice, I'll choose to do good. But what man's will actually chooses and shows clear distinction on is our own sin. Left to ourselves, we will choose sin because our heart is hardened and our heart is wrong. Sin is distinct in its choice of rebellion. Look at verse 5. Look at what it says there. Verse 5, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. This is a a Hebrew way. It's not like him pouting, but him becomes so intensely angry, you can imagine his, his face getting red. Cain gets very angry. This is what the natural heart does. This is what the inherited heart does. It, it decides rebellion. It makes a distinct choice to do what it wants rather than what God wants. And 1 John comments on Genesis 4 in this passage saying that Cain was not only angry, but it says that he was not only angry, but of the evil one. His heart was not only acting out in sin, by not bringing something to God in faith, but he was actually siding with Satan already. You can imagine that the parenting that would have been happening in this midst. Maybe they were adults, maybe they were still young, but here we have this firstborn son and the secondborn son trying to raise them and fearing the Lord rightly, but all of a sudden you learn, at least from experience here, that your firstborn son is actually siding with the devil in his actions where Genesis 3 draws a battle line where you are either on the side of good or you are either on the side of evil. You're either on the side of God or you're on the side that is against God. So when you and I pop off or we gossip or we belittle or we strike, what the Word already shows us is that this is actually not only wrong and it's sin, but it's also on the path of the evil one. So we see that sin is disruptive and it's distinct in what it chooses Cain chose to do this. But we also see, thirdly, in this first section, sin's own charm. 
You might, you might want to stop the story and say, Cain, don't do that. Even the Lord does this. He intervenes and he says, be careful. Don't do what you're about to do. But we see sin's own charm. Positioned against God's continual grace and patience, sin's charm is deceptive. Look at verses 6 and 7. After Cain's unworthy sacrifice, God in his patience, God in his mercy, comes to Cain. He appeals to Cain. He warns Cain how kind and gentle of God. God says to Cain that if he will do well, meaning if he will choose righteousness, if he will repent, he will find restoration. God, God will forgive what he has done if he comes to God. And he warns Cain that if sin masters him, danger will result. He says, it, he says it's like it's crouching at the door. And he needs to take it to task. This passage where the Lord speaks these words in verse 7, it says, If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. I would imagine some of you live on properties where you have things other than dogs or cats possibly running around. You know, maybe you have a rabid coyote who is coming for your house. You might walk out in the backyard and see a coyote there, and you've got little children inside and the doorway's open. What do you do in that moment? Or what should you do in that moment? You take time and journal about possibly how this is a, a wonderful thing? Do you take time to possibly pray about it and see what all the possibilities are? Do you maybe call your mom and say, what, what do I do here? And did you give me dad's gun or what do I? No, you take action and you actually kill that rabied out coyote. I don't know the future past tense of rabied, but you, you go after that coyote, right? Because it's crouching at your door. It's going to kill you. The late theologian John Owen says that you must be killing sin or sin will kill you. That theology is not something that he created. We see it here in Genesis 4 where, where Cain was looking to do something and God is warning him, do not do that. You must master the sin that is in your heart or it will crush you. Elsewhere in the Bible, we see that sin is portrayed as a, as a trap, as something that lures you. It's seductive. It says this in the book of Proverbs, that it's like a, a fine pearled necklace around a seductor. And then once sin intertwines in your life, it expands to greater and greater and greater severity. James talks about this, that when you're tempted, you're actually carried away or you're enticed by your own lust. And then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. James echoes God's words here to Cain. Cain's sin is crouching at his door. And if he doesn't master it, it'll lead to greater danger than he's in now. So sin's charm is expanding, and it's deceitful. You have to imagine that, that Cain did not wake up that morning preparing himself for worship and also deciding at that moment to kill his own brother. But here we see the consequences of this in verses 8 through 12. The fourth scene of this passage, we see Abel's own murder. We see God's sentence against Cain. The consequence of the sin that he brought on himself the, the consequence of the sin that has been hard, harbored in its own heart. And so the Lord comes to Cain. says, Cain, master the sin, master the bitterness, or it will dominate you. But what does Cain do? He allows the bitterness to grow. He allows it to fester in his heart. He allows the anger to now take action. And in verse 8, he just slays his brother. The first death, the first human death in the fallen world was a murder. 
You have to think about this in the totality of Scripture or in our own lives. The, the first human death in the fallen world was a murder. It wasn't done by old age. It wasn't done by an accident. It was an intentional murder. The firstborn son of Adam killing the second son. The consequences of this sin. Yet even still in verse 9, look at that. Even still in verse 9, God comes looking for Cain just like he had come looking for Adam after his sin in the garden. But notice Cain's disregard for both his brother and the Lord. God asks him, Cain, where is your brother? And I don't know the personality, what, what you have of Cain in this moment. You might, you might have that unresponsive teenager who you call and say, you know, hey, where's your brother? And the kid goes, I don't know. It's none of my business. Yeah, there's, a, there's an affront to his brother as an image bearer, and there's an affront here to God not having the respect of the holy God of the universe, asking him a question. He's not even giving him a response. He just asks something else. Am I my brother's keeper? It's not my business. I thought you were in charge. No love for his brother. The heartlessness of just murdering someone and not caring. And then a rude response to the God of the universe. That's what you get in verse 9. No love for either man or for God. And so in verse 10, the Lord curses Cain. This is the first curse against a person in the scriptures, we, we often think that Adam and Eve were cursed in Genesis 3, but they, they weren't cursed. The ground was cursed. They would have to endure the curse, but here he curses this man. He says, you're cursed from the ground. The curse here is directly against Cain's life and livelihood. He's sentenced to toil and to wandering. This is the man who would have made his livelihood off of the ground, that now everything that he does will be miserable and difficult, and he won't even have a home to go to. He's going to be having a life of just wandering. He'll be a drifter for the rest of his life. He'll be sent to the land of Nod, which Nod means wandering. And you think of this, what this kid could have inherited. I keep saying kid. He could have been 50. I don't know. I mean, these guys lived for hundreds of years back then, but what he could have inherited from his parents, the, the earth, and what he was given was wandering. God sent him to the land of wandering. That's his curse. And even through this, Cain would become even harder in his heart, even harsher in his heart, even to the point where his own offspring would be some of the most tyrannical people we could ever imagine, which shows us the, the final development of, of sin, and that is sin's insanity. It not only has consequences, it's not only charming, it's not only disruptive, it's not only distinct in its purpose, but it's just insane. In verses 13 through 16, God shows you the hardness of an unrepentant heart. Even with the patience of the Lord, Cain, in verse 13, protests God's sentence. Lord, this is too harsh. You're not treating me fairly. How am I going to survive? People are going to know that I'm a murderer. The hardened heart says, Lord, your sentence is unfair. And this is helpful for us in what you and I can see as what is a repentant heart? What is a heart that's seeking forgiveness from the Lord? Well, it's certainly not a heart that's seeking one like Cain, where Cain says, this is too much for me. Whereas a heart that is seeking righteousness, a heart that is seeking repentance, actually says to the Lord, your mercy in its smallness towards me is completely undeserved. Just an ounce of your mercy is something that I don't deserve at all. Your sentence is fair, but your mercy is what is undeserved. Very often in our own lives, we, we beg for God to be fair with us. And in reality, we don't want God to be fair at all. We want him to be merciful. 
If God was truly fair with our hard hearts, with our sinful ways, we wouldn't survive another day. But we're thankful that he is not fair with us. He is merciful towards us. He placed his fairness on his own son. And this is always the case in the scriptures, where we often see that an unrepentant heart wants more patience from the Lord, but a repentant heart is just basking in the mercy that God provides. Whenever we hear someone declaring that God's will is too harsh, we may be listening to an unrepentant heart, but because a repentant heart knows that if we were to receive what we deserve, we would all be under the condemnation of God. And this is not something because Cain lacked for opportunities. You look at the time and time again that God came toward him. Twice, God came to Cain and offered him every opportunity to show repentance. Another time, he came to Cain and said, don't do that, and yet there was only hardness of Cain's heart. Why? Because he lacked the moral capacity to change. Only God can change these hearts. If we were hardened in our own hearts, we cannot save ourselves. And this is the word of hope that's for us in this passage, this dark passage Uh, there is actually a word of hope within this. You might look at this and go, this is a murder scene. How is there any sense of hope in this? In the intoxicating reality and insanity of sin, there is is already a glimmer for a need of someone to provide. A, A glimmer that we can be seen in hope that God would provide someone who would overcome the hardness of our own hearts. That God would give us someone or something that would break into our hearts, dismantle it, and make us new again. But we see this five-fold scene of what sin does in people's lives. But then there are two effects. So point number two on your outline, two major effects in Cain's own life from Cain's own sin. And, and you can see how this is replicated, hopefully not in your own life, but in other people's lives. When people sin, what happens? Well, the first thing is sin brings isolation between you and God. You see this in verses 16 through 18, the next big section of the passage. In verses 16 through 18, an account of Cain's banishment. And we learn there a principle that we have seen before in Genesis. When sin breaks into man's life, when man sins against a holy God, there is a fellowship now that is broken. And this is a pattern that repeats itself again and again. Man will do everything in our power to choose our own way, thinking that this will bring us more happiness But in reality, all that our sin does is bring us isolation from God, banishes us from God's presence, banishes us from God's grace and mercy. We see this possibly in our own lives and in other people's lives around them. They feel so distant from God. And what are they doing but choosing their own path instead of His? The amazing turn, though, the amazing twist of this is that the striking reality of this is exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross for man's own sins. It's striking that on the cross we see that the perfect son of the father's love actually being banished. So like Cain here was banished from the presence of the Lord, like Adam and Eve were removed from the garden, we see on the cross that it was Jesus, the son of God, who was banished, who was expelled, who cast out to the point where he he knew it, he felt it when he cried out, why have you forsaken me? And he did this for the sins of those who would come before him and after him. He who had done no sin actually becomes sin on our behalf so that we become the righteousness of God in him. This is the mystery of the justification that was longed for in Genesis 4. This is the mystery of imputation being cried out for even in the midst of the hands of this murderer. Christ's sacrifice for sin. Our sin is now charged to his accounts. 
This is one of those moments where you have like a little lesson that you might have with a child or a friend, that something big just happens, and you might direct them very quickly to a comparison, if you will, of what Jesus went through on the cross. Here, Cain chose sin and was banished from the presence of the Lord. And isn't it it amazing that what the gospel tells us is that Jesus on purpose came and decided to be banished so that we could have fellowship again with God. Cain being banished for sin is something that we can understand. But apart from God's redeeming plan, it, it truly, the gospel makes no sense when we see that Jesus was banished on our behalf. What about us made him want to do that, yet out of his love for us? The only answer to that mystery are those glorious words that he's given us, that he was banished on our behalf, that he took up our blame willingly, and he redeemed us by his own blood. You think of the comparison here of Genesis 4 and, and the end of the gospel accounts. Blood caused, caused banishment in one end, and blood caused fellowship on the other. Sin brings isolation in our lives, but sin also brought dehumanization to Cain and his offspring. Sin brings dehumanization. Look at verses 19 through the end, it's a, or 19 through 24. It's a picture of Cain's legacy. It's a picture of his offspring. If you think of Verses 1 through 16 as a picture of the legacy of Adam and Eve. And now we have in these couple of verses the legacy of Cain. The picture of the workings of depravity in someone called Lamech, who was the son of Cain. The picture of Lamech in verses 19 through 24 is not a pretty picture. It shows him being the first polygamist recorded in Scripture, and it's no accident that He's of the line of Cain. It shows him as being a murderer, and it's no accident that he's of the line of Cain, and Cain being of the line of the serpent, we could see theologically. Moses is the one who wrote Genesis 2 and portrays the offspring of the offspring of the created ones as doing the very opposite of what he called man and woman to do together. Cain and his offspring, or Cain's offspring, takes to himself what was not his. He knows what God's original purposes are, yet he's telling us, Moses is telling us, that the first man to take two wives to act sexually in sin is of the line of Cain. Now, sure, you can look at this passage and a couple of passages after it and see all the, all the great accomplishments that happen from the line of Cain. They're experts in nomadic activities. They're experts in herding. They would have invented all these practices. They're experts in musical arts. I mean, think about it. They didn't have guitars or drums, but all of a sudden they created music. They created art. They created drama. They were experts in these. They were founders of metalwork. They built cities. How do you and I know how to build a city? Because someone did it for us. These guys just invented that kind of stuff. And a biased account would have ascribed everything awesome to Cain. They would have said, look at his children. A little rough around the edges. Yeah, their family's kind of a mess. But look at all the stuff they did. Look at all the plaques they could hang in their house. Another account would have ascribed nothing good to Cain. The truth is far more complex than all these worldly accomplishments. God was to make much use of the Canaanite techniques for his own people, for sure, from the semi-nomadic discipline itself to the civilized arts and crafts. He would have used this as a way to bring himself more glory, and we use some of this stuff even today. The phrase, he was the father of all such, acknowledges the debt 
and prepares us to accept for ourselves a, a similar indebtedness to secular enterprise. But for the Bible, it nowhere teaches that the godly have all the gifts. And yet, there is a balance here of appreciation for the human creativity as a divine gift and the recognition that these techniques were brought by a hardness of heart that would only bring despair for a legacy that will continue. In verses 19, 23, and 24, we see a picture of the kind of man Lamech was. Look at this. In verse 23, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's, meaning talking about himself, is 77-fold. Anyone who punishes me, I will wear them out and destroy their whole family. You hit me once, I'll hit you 77 times. There's no doubt that when Jesus talked about forgiving someone 77 times, it's in response to the evilness that mankind can normally display without a heart that has been made new. In verse 19, he boasts about being a polygamist. In verse 23, he boasts about being a murderer. In verse 24, it says that he not only murdered, but he boasted about how much havoc he could bring. This is nothing else than the mind of a perverse man, Uh, someone who is you could almost recognize as no longer human. No longer what man was created to be in Genesis 2, or Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And this is what sin does. It dehumanizes the mind. It ruins the soul. And it's like a snowball that is avalanching toward destruction. Now, in the midst of all of this, I said that God shows us glimpses of glory in the salvation that he would bring through this judgment. And you look at this passage and you see that the death of Cain and Abel, you look at the next passage, you see the expanse of of Cain's almost lineage, his army is just wreaking havoc on the world. And then you go to the next passage in all of chapter 5, and what is chapter 5 in totality? It's a genealogy. And I'm going to guess that most of you look at a genealogy and go, that's boring, moving on to chapter 6, right? You go to genealogies throughout the rest of Scripture, that's boring, no one cares, can't say these names. I definitely don't want to be asked that Sunday morning, to read these in the Scripture reading. I definitely want to be overlooked in that part. But here we have generations of Adam that will lead us all the way to the person of Noah, a fast-forwarding of 1,500 years. At the end of chapter 4, there is another birth. So you can see how Moses pieced this together. At the beginning of chapter 4, a birth, even through death, and finally, a third birth from Adam and Eve. Eve had another son, and he called him or they called him Seth. And he had a son named Enosh. And it was here that some people began for the very first time in our scriptures. It said to call upon the name of the Lord. It was at this point where they were, they were rightly having worship together. But then beginning in verse 3 of chapter 5, there's a long genealogy that would be given from the line of Seth. So you can think of Adam and Eve, and then Seth, and then Enosh, and then on and on and on. It'll go all the way to the person of Noah. If you look at verses 3 through 32, and I'll just highlight a couple of things, uh, you'll, be, you'll be warned to not overlook this genealogy. Genealogies are not boring. Genealogies are very awesome. Genealogies are so awesome that in the New Testament, after Christ arrives, there's no more genealogies. 
Here we see the line of salvation stretching all the way from creation to the flood, beginning in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8. And we learn from some of these emphases, emphases in this passage that God is preserving a people for himself, even in a time of wickedness. Now, there's, there's several ways that I hope you learn to look at Scripture. You know, if you're new at this church, what we try to do on a regular basis is preach the Bible, what's called expositionally, or try to have expository preaching, where we're just trying to plumb the truths of the text. And the phrase that I use that I got from a guy named Dave Helm is expositional preaching is, is that the shape and tone and emphasis of the sermon needs to submit itself to the shape, tone, and emphasis of the text. So whatever the text looks like, that that's ought to be what the sermon looks like, or that ought to be what the Bible study looks like. And in this case, I just want to do that. I just want us to look at the shape and the tone and the emphasis and see why did Moses give us so many names and years in people's lives? Look at the shape of this. This is fast-forwarding us 1,500 years into history. We see, we see a, a development of quantity. You'll read this, and the thing that ought to stick out again and again is the phrase, and he died. This person was born, lived 105 years, and he died. This person was born, lived 807 years, and he died. 90 years, died. 815 years, died. 905 years, died. Again and again, the shocking thing of this genealogy is that all of these image bearers, all of these created people, they are dropping like flies. Moses is saying, look at the effects of the sin here. And look at how much destruction it happens. Sin entered into the world in such a way that it wrecked havoc on the lineage of Adam and Eve to the point where Cain, the firstborn son, murders Abel. And then God's judgment is through death here, where they were mocking God at the beginning of the scripture saying, will we surely die? Look at all their lineage. They surely will. Yet there is a resounding Note of hope within the narrative and despair where we see that hope is restored. Look at verse 6. Look at verse 6 of verse 5. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Verse 6, Enosh was named. And then especially Noah shall bring us rest. We see there towards the end. So we have this lineage of seeds and we have these male descendants of Eve and we're looking at all of these. You might be looking at all of these. Is this the one? Is this the one? And this is the one. But then the tone seems to break here. So we, we see that there's a shape to this text, death. But then there's a tone here. And it's not as subtle as just death. There's, there's breaks in the tone. We see this through the quality of language that's in the passage. There are broken literary patterns. You see that in Enoch and Noah. And I, I didn't get that because I'm a genius. I'm just saying there's a break in pattern because whenever he talks about Enoch or Noah, there's like three times as many words talking about that. So clearly, Moses is writing this like a sharpshooter, breaking it, and then pauses and takes a step back and talks about things. Now, what's he showing us in this broken pattern? And what's Moses showing us? He's showing us that death is ruling in the narrative, and that people are being exiled from God. Yet there is still hope because a man named Enoch walked with God. That's interesting. Who else walked with God but Adam right before he fell? And Enoch didn't die. Enoch didn't fall. Enoch was taken. And then the person of Noah arrives on the scene. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 of chapter 5. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord had cursed, this one shall bring us rest or relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. 
Why does Noah stand out in Genesis 5? First of all, Noah, like Enoch, gets triple the amount of words as anyone else, so that ought to stick out to us. But also, by the way of quantity, Moses shines a spotlight on the person of Noah in this genealogy. But second of all, do you remember zooming in on Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, where God took the man and the woman and put them in the garden? And the Hebrew word for putting them is nuah, N-U-A-H, we could translate in English. The word put or the nuah is actually another way to say rest. So it's not just God throwing them in the garden, but God placed them and rested them in the garden so that they could have true rest. And here we have God giving us someone whose name could be seen as rest. God rested Adam and Eve in the garden so that they could have perfect Sabbath rest, just like God did in the garden. And then happened in Genesis 5, after they were banished, were brought an offspring from a long line of offspring where we meet a certain son named Noah. So, This allows us to understand what Moses is trying to emphasize here. He's not just recounting all the people who died, but there's a a theme that's running throughout all of these people's lives. You can see the stark contrast in the posture of the people in the line of Cain and the people in the line of Seth. Look up again at the end of chapter 4. That's the line uh, line of Cain. And look at the end of chapter 5. That's the line of Seth. Lamech in the line of Cain and his words to the words of Enoch. Look back at Genesis 4, 23 through 24. But then notice Lamech of the line of Seth in Genesis 5, verse 29. Another man by the same name, Lamech, the Sethite, the father of Noah, he says in verse 29, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of the hands. Lamech is remembered for his words, just like his counterpart in the line of Cain is remembered for his own. The Canaanite Lamech is remembered for his arrogance and his threats. And the Sethite Lamech, the father of Noah, is remembered for his longing. He longed to see a relief from the curse of the fall to the point where he even named his own son for this longing. He longed to see the relief that would have later be brought through the person of Noah. And so we turn to Noah in verses 29 through 32 And he's the one who would be the Lord's instrument to bring us rest. Noah's mission was something far more radical than his father could even envision, and there would be judgment far greater than any judgment that had ever been visited by God to the point in this world. But out of the judgment, Noah's family would be destined for the restoration of this second world. And so we come to the last member of the line of salvation from the creation to the flood listed here in verse 32 of chapter 5. And we learn again the lesson that God preserves his people to be a people, even through a period of corruption, even through a period of persecution, even in a time where sin is working its way out in humanity, God is always preserving a people for himself. So, Christian, when you are overwhelmed at the mercilessness of our world, be reminded that God took care of his people then and God will take care of his people now. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that it is by your word we can be reminded of your faithfulness, of your desire to make a people who glorify you. We pray that you would give us hearts that glory in your will, that glory in your discipline, that glory in your grace. Oh Lord, we pray in thanks for what your word says to us, the seriousness of our sin, 
but also the hope that you give us in preserving us for yourself. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.